Boy, it's good to see you all and see some faces that we've missed for some time as well. We've a beautiful portion of Scripture today to look at. Turn in your Bibles with me to John, the 12th chapter. John, the 12th chapter. And I will pray, and then we will stand for the reading of a portion of this glorious hinge in the Gospel of John. Let me pray. Our gracious and loving God and Father, thank you for your presence with us as we have worshipped you, bringing confession of both faith and our sin. We humbly ask that as we now approach thy sacred scripture, waiting upon you, that, that you, Lord Jesus, will teach us, speaking to us according to our individual needs, our concerns, our fears and anxieties, and yes, our sin. So please come in the powerful presence of thy Holy Spirit, opening our minds to understand thy truth, softening our hearts that we might with love more deeply pursue you, reshaping our wills that we might gladly bow before you as our sovereign, our master, our king. Now as thy servant, the Apostle John, leads us into Passion Week, we are grateful for thy breathed out holy word. Humble us, Lord Jesus, that we might with those who accompanied and walked with thee in thy last week, that we too might solemnly, reverently receive what you would teach us. We love you. We are your servants, the adopted children of thy household, sons and daughters, by thy grace through gifted faith, be thou eternally praised. Amen. Amen. Well, stand with me for the reading of John 12, not the whole chapter, but probably first 23 verses. This is the breathed out word of God through the Apostle John. And let me say collectively, we love the sound of little ones fussing, cooing, making noise, even saying no. So please be at peace and comfort with that. It's beautiful to hear. John 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made a supper there, and Martha was serving but Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, why was not this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. <clears throat> but the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had, been, they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You, you see that you're not doing any good. The world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These therefore said to Philip, who was from Bethesda of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip came, told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came, they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Amen. The word of God. You may be seated. We have said that the Gospel of John is a masterpiece gifted to the church through the Spirit of God after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had washed over the church. Today we enter that portion of John which covers Passion Week. Passion meaning for the kids, uh, extreme emotion. It's the last week he will live. He'll die on Friday and it's Sunday. The public ministry of Jesus has come almost to a close. In fact, chapter 13 will begin the final discourses, so chapters 13 through 17 in the upper room, after which John turns back to the passion, his arrest, his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection on the third day. 
All praise to God for Jesus Christ. From John 12, 1 through 23, we hope to see two. There was a chance of three. I doubt it. So we'll say two redemptive events and their implications for us today. First, Jesus' anointing for burial at Bethany, first 11 verses. Deeper insight, Mary's faith trusting into Jesus. Second, Jesus' triumphal entry, deeper insight, Hailed as king, the prince of peace approaches. So first, Jesus' anointing for burial at Bethany. And this is in the first 11 verses that we just read. Consider first two very significant thoughts. The first one's short. The second one, for purposes that you'll see, is a little bit longer. The anointing of Jesus by Mary here in the first 11 verses of John 12, is the necessary prelude to Passion Week. This is what kicks it off. This is the necessary prelude to Passion Week. Second, reflect how Genesis 22 resonates with our passage today. How Genesis 22 resonates with our passage today. Here is the painful but eternally blessed trial by fire of Abraham and Isaac. God had commanded Abraham, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and offer him for a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show thee. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. A.W. Tozier, in a book titled The Pursuit of God, if you haven't read it, you should. It's short. It'll bless you significantly. A.W. Tozier, in this book, writes, and I quote, The sacred writer spares us a close-up of the agony that night on the slopes near Beersheba when the aged man had it out with his God. But respectful imagination may view in awe the bent form wrestling convulsively alone under the stars. How should he slay his son? Even if he could get the consent of his wounded, protesting heart, how could he reconcile the act with the, with the promise, In Isaac shall thy seed be called? This was Abraham's trial by fire, and he did not fail in the crucible. Still Tozier. When the stars still shone like sharp white points above the tent where the sleeping Isaac lay, and long before the gray dawn had begun to lighten the east, the old saint had made up his mind. He would offer his son as God had directed him to do, 
And here's how Hebrews 11 styles it. For he considered that God was able to even raise from the dead. This was the solution his aching heart found sometime in the dark night. Thus he rose early the next morning to carry out the plan. Now mind you, there had been no resurrection of anyone from the dead in Abraham's day. There were no gospel accounts. He knows nothing but he knows what God's command is and he knows the character of God and the promise of God and how can they be reconciled. And he comes to this incredible, novel, new, God must be able to raise even from the dead. Tozier closes this paragraph with these words. While Abraham erred as to God's method, he correctly sensed God's great heart. While Abraham erred on God's method, he did not know there'd be a ram caught in the thicket. He did not know the Lord would stop his hand just as he's about to plunge it. He did not know any of these things. And yet he correctly sensed God's great heart because the pathway of thought that Abraham started on would eventually lead to the father slaying his own son on the cross and then raising him from the dead. Did Abraham understand all that? No. While he erred as to God's method, he correctly sensed God's heart. Hmm. Back to Bethany, John 12. John tells us that six days before Passover, which is on Friday, so on Saturday, Jesus came to Bethany. The Passover was that great annual event which for 1,500 years, Lambs, unblemished lambs, had had their throats cut in Jewish households and then the tabernacle and temple, beseeching the mercy of God that his wrath, his death angel, would pass over them because of the blood on the doorposts. And thus Jesus arrives at Bethany, just two miles from Lazarus, from Jerusalem, where Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead, was. And, and John tells us that, verse 2, that a supper was planned there, and apparently it was a supper, who knows whose house, it doesn't say, because it does name Lazarus was with, so he must have been a guest invited along with Jesus. A supper was planned to honor and celebrate with Martha, the sister of Mary, and Lazarus was serving, and Lazarus was an honored guest. And Martha is doing Martha stuff. She's bustling about. She's meeting needs. She's tending everyone's drink and, and comfort when, when suddenly Mary appears. She looks disheveled, distraught. C. 
singularly focused. Utter silence falls in the room. Solemnly, she walks to where Jesus is reclined at table, his feet behind him. In her hand, we are told, she carries a pound of pure nard, liquid, which she then pours out on Jesus' feet. Substantive amount. We are stunned today, even as they were by her actions. Three things stand out about what Mary did. First, consider that she entered in complete silence, mindless of the chatter that abruptly ceased. Undoubtedly, her appearance and demeanor immediately brought solemnity to the room. All eyes were fixed on her, but her eyes were upon only one, her Lord and Savior, Jesus. Second, consider the sheer lavishness and opulence of what she poured out on Jesus' feet. Nard came from northern India. And, and so the mere transportation of this stuff, this precious herb, this precious uh, oil from the spikenard plant was going to make it costly. And the container, we are told, uh, had roughly 12 ounces, nearly, it's a pound in Roman measurements. This was a king's gift, representing Judas, who was a good money man, estimated it at a valuation of 300 working man's day's wages. This is a year's salary for a working man. Estimates today would suggest that she poured out on Jesus' feet nard representing almost $30,000 in value. That's quite an act. Mary's action expressed what she did not have words to voice. And yet the whole house was filled with the fragrance of her loving devotion. Third, consider that she loosed her hair. She let her hair down. Now the act itself is all the more striking since a Jewish lady never unbound her hair in public. To do so was seen as a sign of loose morals. But Mary did not stop to calculate public reaction. Her, her heart went out to Jesus, giving expression to her feelings in this beautiful, touching gift. Mary's singularity of focus is amazing per the lowly, lowly position to which she put herself. Indeed, Calvin and others suggest that Mary actually, there was enough nard to do this, actually anointed Jesus from head to foot, thus wiping off the excess on his feet with her hair. 
What was that like for Mary? Six hours later. As she goes to sleep. She still smells the fragrance. Her thoughts are on her Lord and Savior. Well, the reaction to Mary was sharp (laughs) and critical, we are told. But Judas, verse 4, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, says, Why was not this perfume sold for 300 working man's wages, day's wages, and given to the poor? The striking thing here that John portrays for us is the response of Mary to Jesus at the beginning of Passion Week and the response of Judas to Jesus at the beginning of Passion Week. Who do I most look like? Eyes devoted, fixed on Jesus alone? Mary, or eyes bitterly looking at offenses taken by others, Judas. Abject humility without regard for what others think, Mary. Loving the praise of men and seeking to secure their approval, Judas. Humble, repentance, adoring, loving her Savior, Mary. Bitterness rooted deeply in thought, word, and deed, Judas. The fragrant aroma Mary's love left in the room has blessed the Lord Jesus and the church for centuries. The foul odor of Judas's bitterness that he left behind him has stank from that day to this. Who do I most smell like? Well, Jesus immediately defends Mary. He would have nothing to do with the criticism leveled at her. He rebukes, let her alone. Stop it. Leave her alone. But the striking thing is that he linked her action, he linked that she had anointed him to his burial. Now, anointing was usually a time of festivity. In fact, in Luke 7, Jesus rebukes Simon at the dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house. says, you didn't even anoint me as a guest. Anointing was a time of festivity, not a time for funerals. Leon Morris summarizes well, saying, A remark about a burial is not at all what we would have expected. We must take this as a measure of the extent to which the passion, his approaching death, was in Jesus' mind. Listen carefully. It loomed large in his thoughts. 
And therefore, Mary's action was immediately by Jesus linked with his death. And he associated Mary with this understanding too. Hmm. Mark that. Jesus appears to have associated Mary with his understanding of his approaching death. Mary had correctly sensed her master's heart. She had entered more fully into Jesus' mind and heart than the others. The others are having a fun time telling jokes. Hey, how's your day been? A party. You know, Lazarus. Not Mary. Now, did Mary understand his death would be by crucifixion? Possible from his lifted up statements, but unlikely. Did she understand the absolute horror of God the Father's wrath on him as the weight of sin would be placed upon him at the cross? No, she could not have possibly understood that. But she sensed his heart and she sensed the weight he bore concerning what was coming and she responded in a relational movement towards him. Very carefully chosen words by me. Remember Tozer's comment about Abraham? While he erred as to God's method, he correctly sensed God's great heart. Jesus immediately saw in the poured out nard, he saw his death just came to him. And he clearly sensed that Mary had entered more fully into his mind, his heart, than the others, knowing that his end was near. Or in the words of Titus, I lifted this from a message preached almost one year ago here. Mary beautifully adorned her Lord and her God with a costly and lavish outpouring of perfume, fulfilling the God-intended role of women to be reverent in their behavior as to a sacred place. Mary did that. Hmm. Well, now to help bring all this together, we recall that John uses only the verb form of the Greek word for belief, faith, or trust. Thus, the gospel's concept of faith is not like a noun, it's movement, action. And this was foreseen in the prologue in verse 1 where, where we are told, and the word was with God, or the preposition there meaning the word was face to face with God, a relational movement toward another face to face. We also recall John's use of the preposition into as, for instance, Jesus saying, whoever believes into me. Language not used anywhere else, not in the synoptics, not in extra-biblical 
literature, nobody speaks of believing into Caesar, believing into Plato. But Jesus continually says, whoever is believing into me. And we, we wonder, I hope you have, I still wonder for the fullness of the meaning. What does that mean? Well, we are looking at a good illustration of it in Mary. We're looking at a good illustration of what this believing into Jesus means in Mary. Abraham believed in two, trusted in two his God. Mary believed in two, trusted in two Jesus. Said another way, who was Mary thinking about in the days and hours prior to this act anointing Jesus' feet? Jesus. Mary was not thinking about herself. She had not spent the night before entertaining herself on the screen. She was thinking about Jesus. She had not been nursing grudges or bitterness or she had not been self-centered. Her heart was singularly focused upon Jesus asking, what is he experiencing? How does he feel about all this that is coming? I sense that he's sad. Lord God, is he sad? What is the burden of his heart? What can I do to express my love and reverence for him as my Lord and God? Mary was thinking about trusting in to Jesus. I do not claim this to be the fullness of what trusting into Jesus means, but it is certainly in the direction of it. Certainly, this is a very helpful direction of it. To be trusting into Jesus, you are not constantly thinking about yourself. You are dwelling on him. You are worshiping him. So you're going to have your Bible open. You're going to be reading about him. You're going to be speaking to him of your love, your devotion, your desire. You, you are being like Mary. Turn with me to Psalms 119, verse 15. Psalms 119, that's smack in the middle of your Bible. The 119th Psalm, verse 15, has a statement that has just haunted me for 20 years, 30 years. It's when I first realized it. Psalms 119, verse 15. From the ESV. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. You see it there? Now listen to it from the Holman Christian Standard. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. Take just one of the Ten Commandments and meditate on it, asking, What, O oh Lord, does this your command teach me about you? What does the seventh command teach me about your heart, Father? 
I will meditate on your precepts and think about how you think about things, how you ponder life in the world, what you think about me. Do you see how childlike this is to take any event or word of Jesus and begin prayerfully, meditatively asking, what, my Lord, do you want me to understand from this? Oh, yeah, I can quote the catechism. What is the chief end of man? I can quote the catechism. But are you asking, why did God say this? Why did he give this command? What can I learn about the person? Do you see that? This is the difference between a church that knows the creed, the confessions verbatim, versus a church that knows the person behind the creed. You can know the creed and not know he to whom the creed points. So first, Jesus' anointing for burial at Bethany. Uh, Let me just back up a second. You know surely by now that I believe strongly in the shorter catechism. I've seen the theological wasteland in churches and denominations that reject the creeds and confessions. I believe strongly in it. But if we memorize it verbatim, but it never leads us to pursuing the man, Jesus, Satan's got that stuff memorized, and he's going to hell. It's about pursuit of a relationship through the creed, through the commandments, whatever it is from Scripture. Well, first, Jesus' anointing for burial at Bethany. Through Mary's faith trusting into Jesus, she had entered more fully into his mind, his heart, than the others. Am I like Mary? Does Jesus consider me one seeking to understand him more deeply? Or are my thoughts just always about me, what I want, what my appetite is for food, for sex, for entertainment? It's just all about me. Or am I learning to think about and trust into Jesus more and more? Well, second, his triumphal entry. Verse 12 of John 12 tells us the next day, Sunday, this great swollen multitude who had come to Jerusalem for the feast, they heard that Jesus was coming, and they come pouring out of the gates. And they took branches of palm trees, waving them, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Big picture, this event of this triumphal entry wound up buying Jesus' time in the providence of God. The Jewish leaders didn't dare touch him. They couldn't for fear of the people. And consequently, in God's providence, the church was given John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And then... 
they touched him. Hmm. Well, John 12, 13 tells us the people went out to meet him. And this verb has the special idea of a word used to officially welcome newly arrived dignitary. Now, do you understand what this would do for the leadership in Jerusalem? This is treasonous. In fact, it is this claim that will be thrown. He claimed to be king. Pilate, are you a king? So the fervency of welcome coupled with the waving of palm branches was not unnoticed by the authorities. Now, historically, palms were an emblem of victory. John saw in this the triumph of Christ. Listen to Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold, verse 9, Revelation 7, 9, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. All men, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So Jesus, mounted upon a young donkey, comes down the hill while the crowd flows with him and around him who had witnessed his raising Lazarus from the dead. But mark the contrast. Here was a people amidst heightened nationalistic fervor, fully expecting the return of the Davidic kingship, restoration of Israel. Throughout their ministry, his ministry, they had hoped, thought, tried to make him king. But Jesus did not come in the style of a militaristic, nationalistic leader. He will tell Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That Jesus mounted a donkey fulfilled, as we saw last year, Zechariah 9, and profoundly communicated eternally weighty things. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming unto thee. He is just or righteous and endowed with salvation. Humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Isaiah, rather, Zephaniah 9 continues, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, to the peoples, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, a religion for the world, the religion for the world. 
As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you. This is what Jesus wrote into Jerusalem aware of. I am coming forward as the Passover lamb through whom a new covenant will be established. I am king, but not like you think. Ride on, ride on in majesty. Hark all the tribes, Hosanna cry. Save your meek, pursue your road with palms and scattered garments strode. Ride on, ride on in majesty. In lowly pomp, ride on to die. O Christ, your triumphs now begin, or captive death and conquered sin. Ride on, ride on in majesty, your last and fiercest strife is nigh. The Father on his sapphire throne expects his own anointed Son. Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp ride on to die. Bow your meek head to mortal pain, then take, O God, your power and reign. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this glorious manifestation of who he truly was. Yes, king, but first sacrifice. Father, we contemplate Mary's action, particularly as it resonates with Abraham's deeper insight. Whom are we like? Are we approaching you with thoughts for you? Would you say of us that he or she understands this part of my heart? Oh Lord, I pray that you'll touch us and make us as she was to thee. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.